Friends, good morning. Great to see each one of you here today. We want to continue our summer series and uh, continue with the Psalms. Uh, we'll be in Psalm 16 today, so find your way there in your Bible or your uh, electronic doodad, whatever you have with you. And allow me to, <laughs> allow me to read this before we begin this morning. Uh, this you'll recognize, you'll hear later in the psalm quoted by Paul on the day of Pentecost in his sermon, uh, uh, rather Peter. Uh, it's also quoted by Paul later in the book of Acts, um, both referring to the resurrection of Christ. But let's hear the word of the Lord from uh, Psalm 16 this morning. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply their drink offerings of blood. I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Uh, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the word of God. May he bless the reading of his word. And let's ask for his help as we dive into these verses this morning. Give us grace, uh, Christ Jesus, to study your word. Let the truth uh, change our lives, Lord, as we uh, look into this challenging psalm. Strengthen us with grace to uh, allow the truth to penetrate our hearts uh, to transform us. Jesus, strengthen me as I preach this morning. My voice and uh, my thoughts, my mind, and Lord, help us to hear uh, your word. Give us eyes that we may see. We commit ourselves to you in this process. May your spirit move among us even now. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. A fringe benefit is something extra that you receive from your employer, something beyond your normal salary. Uh, things like health insurance, a company car, paid vacation time, or uh, working from home. More and more, that's the case, people working from home. Uh, recently, though, some employers have gone beyond the typical fringe benefits that are offered. Uh, they offer their employees flexible work hours, gym memberships, maternity leave, a pet-friendly work environment, child care, and even a game room. Some employers have gone further still, offering these perks, free books, no official work hours, on-site health services, mental health support, and student loan pay-downs. I like these next two best of all, and these are beyond even those. If you're employed at Ben and Jerry's Ice Cream, you get a free pint of ice cream every day. 
And before you ask, I do not have their contact information. <laughs> and if you're employed at Patagonia, the outdoor clothing manufacturer, they offer midday surfing on the water, that is. And they keep daily surf reports posted at the receptionist's desk. It's uh, perhaps a little crass to think of um, a believer's fringe benefits, but there are distinct advantages for those who follow Christ. We uh, more often refer to these as blessings, not benefits, perhaps, and there are significant blessings in a life that's lived for the Lord. Blessings are benefits that are far, far superior than daily ice cream or midday surfing. What are the benefits of a life that's committed to Christ? Uh, what are the blessings uh, of a life lived with Christ at the center? This is what we discover in Psalm 16. What are the benefits of a life committed to Christ? And there are three stages that David moves through in Psalm 16. Experiencing the, the benefits of a, of a life committed to Christ is a process. And we'll observe David going through this process as we examine these three stages that he moves through. Uh, experiencing these blessings begins with a commitment to him. Uh, and this is what we see in David. We see his commitment in this first stage. As a faithful follower of Yahweh, David reviews the commitments that he's made to the Lord. And David reviews five commitments that he's made in these verses. First, he's committed his safety to the Lord. Uh, David looks to the Lord for his protection. We find this in verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Preserve means keep watch over something. Protect someone from danger. Stand guard from someone. Uh, a few scholars believe that this indicates uh, imminent danger in David's life, perhaps even life-threatening circumstances. Uh, David gives us uh, no indication of that in the heading, just says a miktam of David, which uh, no one really knows the meaning of, as the footnote indicates in your Bible. Uh, there's no indication that he's in Im imminent danger, that he's uh, on the edge of death. We don't know his circumstances, but at the very least, this indicates that he's completely dependent on the Lord for his safety. Look at that second part of verse 1. For in you I take refuge. Uh, as a fledgling would take refuge under the wings of its mother. Uh, or as a warrior would find protection behind his shield. Or as a person would find shelter from a storm inside a cave, things uh, which David did at least twice. He finds refuge, shelter, protection, and safety in the Lord. Take note that he doesn't take refuge in his mighty men. Who were his mighty men? They were that elite group of soldiers uh, loyal to David, dedicated to his protection, those skilled men, skills approaching that of a Navy SEAL. Uh, they were his commandos. We read about these in the books of First and Second Samuel. And these men are certainly important to David, uh, perform many functions for David. <coughs> David knows his safety, protection, and preservation are ultimately 
in the hands of God. So first, his safety is committed to the Lord. Well, then secondly, we see that David is committed to the Lord as his sovereign. Uh, notice verse 2 in your Bible. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. And I'd like you to look down at your Bible, look at your text, and notice the two different ways the word Lord is spelled. The first occurrence, uh, Lord, is in small caps or all caps. Uh, and that indicates that this represents the name Yahweh, God's personal covenant name uh, with the nation of Israel. But then the second time it occurs, you are my Lord, spelled in lowercase letters. Uh, when Lord is spelled like that, it represents the Hebrew name Adonai. This is a title of supremacy, a title of authority. Uh, uh, the authority, uh, one Hebrew dictionary describes it as, quote, a title of the true God with a focus on the authority and majesty of a ruler. And so David is then through these two terms for Lord, uh, indicating that he's committed to Yahweh as his master, as his ruler, as his sovereign, that he calls the shots. Can I remind you that this is what each follower of Christ is called to? And before we rush past this and you put an obligatory check mark in the box, oh sure, yeah. Is this something you've done? Because at the same time that you and I are summoned to trust in Christ as our Savior, we're also called to surrender to Him as Lord. I know you've heard me say this multiple times, but it was taught years ago, in fact, I grew up under this kind of teaching, that you trusted Christ as your Savior, and then sometime, perhaps when you were high school or got really serious with the Lord, that's when you committed to Him as your Lord. But when Christ calls you, uh, to himself as your Savior, at the same time he is calling you to himself as your Lord and Master. There's no split here, no uh, lapse of time. And I, I want to ask, is this something that you've done? He's not merely interested in a profession of faith. He wants your entire life. He wants all of you. He, Jesus himself explains this in Luke's gospel in chapter 9, verse 23, and he said to all, okay, this isn't just the elite disciples he's talking to. This isn't the really mature people who are really ready to go for it. He says to everybody, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. This is not a call to mumble the sinner's prayer at the end of a service. This is a call to complete surrender to him as your master, your sovereign. He doesn't want, just want your heart. He wants your knee as well. And this is David's second commitment to the Lord. Uh, he's committed to him as sovereign, as master, as ruler, as the one with complete authority over his life. Well, David goes on, uh, not only safety 
and sovereign, his sovereign, he commits to the Lord for his satisfaction. And David says this in the second half of verse 2, I have no good apart from you. The word good here, I think, is a general reference to the Lord's care and provision. Good refers to David's well-being. And, and verse 2 says, I have no good apart from you. That preposition could be literally translated, I have no good beyond you. In other words, my welfare does not lie outside the Lord. My good is not beyond God. This is, a, this is an important thing to grasp, friend. A very important thing to understand. How often do we believe that our good, our well-being, is something just beyond God? We think our good lies in something the Lord hasn't given us. Our well-being is something that we have to go beyond God to get, that it's something outside of Him. This is at the heart of most temptation. Oh, if I could just have that, and I'm going to have to go around God to get it, uh, common in temptation. But such a thing doesn't exist. Does not exist. And uh, C.S. Lewis, that uh, fairly well-known author, explains it like this in a letter. Uh, I think it's so well put. God, God not only understands but shares the desire which is the, at the root of all my evil, he writes, the desire for complete and ecstatic happiness. He made me for no other purpose than to enjoy it, but he knows, and I do not, how such happiness can be really and permanently attained. I think we may be quite rid of the old haunting suspicion it raises its head in every temptation, that there is something else than God, some other country into which he forbids us to trespass, some kind of delight which he doesn't appreciate or just chooses to forbid, but which would be real delight if only we were allowed to get it. The thing just isn't there. Whatever we desire is either what God is trying to give us as quickly as he can, or else a false picture of what he is trying to give us, uh, or excuse me, a false picture which would not attract us for a moment if we saw the real thing. That's so good. That thing you think would make you so happy, the thing you think lies just beyond God, that boyfriend, that girlfriend, that... Uh, pleasure, that job, whatever it is, is not beyond God, is not outside of God. God is good and gracious and desires to bless us, and he knows if he gave us what we wanted, how miserable we would be. The thing does not exist. I agree with Lewis. And this is essentially what David says, I have no good beyond you. There is no greener pasture. The greener pasture is you. Well, we could dwell here all day long, I think. At least, well, I could. There's another commitment David makes. Not only the first three, but he's, he's committed to the saints. That is 
uh, the Lord's people, to other faithful Israelites, to other worshipers of Yahweh. Look at it, verse 3, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. Excellent ones refers to people of rank, nobility, uh, majestic ones. It's these that David regards as people of rank. These are the important ones, and it's these followers of Yahweh that are the ones he wants to associate with. David is fulfilling the very thing he wrote about in the psalm above. Uh, last week we were in Psalm 15. Look at verse 4. Uh, this is the, the righteous man. It says, In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. This psalm is assuming, Psalm 16 is assuming that if you delight in God, you will delight in his people as well. This is picked up in the New Testament. Paul writes in Colossians 1.4, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of, of the love you have for all the saints. Uh, it's made several times this assumption is in the book of 1 John. 1 John 3.14 is one occurrence. We know that we have passed out of death into life, out of spiritual death into spiritual life, from unbelief into belief, because we love the brothers, and by uh, inference, sisters. Because we love the saints. Whoever does not love abides in death. And so the, what John is saying, the short version, if you don't love God's people, you don't belong to him. Because those who belong to God also love the people of God. Uh, one writer says it this way, if Yahweh is your Lord, you will prize his people. Otherwise, something's wrong. Is something wrong? Is something wrong? Is this a commitment to the saints reflected in your life? I, I will be painfully obvious. One of the ways we demonstrate this commitment to God's people, to the saints, is by showing up here on the Lord's Day. Yes. Am I going there? I just did. <laughs> love for the Lord is reflected in love for His people and gathering together in fellowship and lifting up our voices together in worship and hearing instruction from his word together and feasting on, uh, uh, feasting on the elements of, of communion, the, the bread and the cup. This is a commitment, not, not of course to communion, but this commitment to the saints is, is what David is describing to us. And there's a flip side to this as we go on. He's not only committed to the saints, he is committed to separate from the wicked. He will not be a companion to those who worship another god. Uh, continue reading in verse, uh, no, look at verse 4. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. This is about blessings and benefits to the righteous. Here he pauses and comments on the um, non-benefits 
or the sorrows of the unrighteous. Uh, it says, uh, and, and sorrows is a word for, it's a very broad term, emotional pain, distress, physical harm. It can actually refer to a bruise or a mark on the body. Pardon me. David calls these sorrows. And these sorrows don't just increase, David says, they multiply. Uh, That means, uh, mathematically speaking, they increase rapidly. Uh, This is the lot of those who pursue another God. This is why David keeps his distance, separates himself uh, in the second half of verse 4. Their drink offerings of blood, I will not pour out uh, their libation. What what, uh, the Israelites poured out wine uh, at the altar as a drink offering. And these pagan rituals involved uh, pouring out blood and perhaps even drinking that blood. But not only would David not join in this form of worship, he won't even take their names on their lips. Not the names of the, of the unbelievers, the names of their gods. To his mind, the very thing would be blasphemy. Because Baal means Lord, and Molech means king. He will not refer to anything other than the one true king that he has committed himself to up in verse 2. I, I won't even breathe their names. I, I won't swear by their gods. Look, this applies to us as well. Our dearest companions should not be those from the world, from those who don't know Christ. And this is clear. This is not uh, uh, supposition. This is not, oh, I think this is what Paul means. He says it quite, quite directly in, in the book of 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, verse 14. You've heard these verses. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. What's that referred to? Uh, what's unequally yoked? Well, it's uh, marriage, business, close friendship, he goes on, for what partnership has righteousness, righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial, another name for the devil? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As, as God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Many of you heard those verses growing up. Would you get me some cough drops, please? I forgot them today. You perhaps heard that growing up from uh, your church of origin where um, uh, your pastor waving his white handkerchief and spitting out his words was, was telling you to avoid mixed bathing and things like that and um, because you, you were called to be separate. This, this is not that kind of thing, but there is a basis to who your closest friends are. 
and who's those you fellowship with and who you're in business with and who you're married to and it's quite clear uh, I believe at least prove me wrong take me out to lunch and prove me wrong <laughs> that this is not what Christ is referring to in these words and depending how good the lunch is I might come to agree with you but I doubt it. These are David's commitments. And this is where our benefits begin with a commitment to Christ, uh, with following him. Uh, and there are five commitments he's mentioned. He's committed his safety to the Lord. Thank you. He's um, committed to the Lord as his sovereign. He's committed uh, to the Lord for his satisfaction. He's committed to the saints and also to separation from the wicked. And, and now moving on, we see him moving to the second stage. Because of these commitments that David has made to the Lord, he enjoys contentment in the Lord. In the second stage, we see David move uh, into contentment, satisfaction with the Lord and his blessings. And he mentions satisfaction in four areas. He mentions satisfaction with his person. And by that I mean the Lord himself. Uh, uh, I want you to notice um, the immense uh, satisfaction he has. In, beginning in verse 5. Uh, let me read both of these verses. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. There are four important words here, and your Bible might be slightly different. Portion, um, cup, uh, lines, as in measuring lines, and inheritance. These are all terms borrowed from uh, the book of Joshua, and the conquest of the promised land when uh, Joshua divided the land amongst the tribes. I know you can't read the names, but I believe you can see the colors. Each color represents land given to a different tribe. Um, uh, there's one idea expressed in these words, and that is David's satisfaction with his person, with the Lord. The first phrase of verse 5 indicates this. The Lord, the Lord is my chosen portion, or the Lord is my allotted portion, which would be better. Uh, recall that there was one tribe in Israel that didn't get land. There's one tribe that didn't get land. Remember, Joshua's descendants were divided into Ephraim and Manasseh. That's why there's still 12. The, the tribe of Levi received no property. The Lord was their inheritance. And the Lord had said to Aaron, uh, and the Lord said to Aaron, you shall have no inheritance in their land, neither shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. But you say David wasn't a Levite. David was from the tribe of Judah. David did get property. This is Judah down here. Darker green is the tribe of Simeon within it. But Judah is this 
lighter shade of green. That was that that land belonged to David's people. But but look at what he's doing here. He's comparing himself and claiming the same privilege as the Levites. That the Lord is his possession. It, he, as it were, belongs to him. He is his lot that he's received. Listen to the, how this man puts it. The priests and the Levites did not have the security of their own land, but had to rely on God for their safety. David is claiming the same close relationship with God. True safety and security do not come from property and possessions, but from knowing God and living in His presence. He, David, is blessed with God Himself. God Himself is David's inheritance. And so there are other places in Scripture that describe this. The prophet Jeremiah said the same thing. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Asaph, in Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Consider the irony of this considering how discontent you and I tend to be. So one pastor described it this way, discontent is one of the most striking characteristics of our time. It's particularly a mark of the so-called baby boomer generation. I think it's well beyond the baby boomers. Whoever... If you're walking the planet, I think this is true of you. One child of this era where baby boomers are not very content because our expectations are so much higher than our reality. We tend to be discontent, restless, and bored. And this pastor continues, there is no cure for this except in God. This cure is what Paul discovered. And if you struggle with contentment in the Lord, it is no easy thing. Paul said it required the strength of the indwelling Christ to get there. This is heavy lifting. Listen to his words. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This might be the greatest spiritual struggle of our, of our era. This contentment with his person, the Lord himself. You've seen pictures of this just as well as I have driving around rural Cherokee County, driving by the farm and seeing the ridiculous goat or cow with his head stuck out the fence eating the grass. You've seen it, haven't you? 
It's the silliest thing. And right behind him is what? This huge meadow. So this first area that David found contentment in was in the person of God. Um, his very being. The Lord was his portion, his allotment, his possession. But these terms about the land bring us to another uh, area, and that is his provision. Uh, as verse 5 continues into verse 6, uh, they seem to refer to David's physical needs as, as genu general circumstances. And so in the middle of verse 5, it says, You hold my lot. The lines, measuring lines, that is, uh, lines used to measure property, have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. According to one pastor, these seem to refer to his, again, general circumstances, his daily provision of food and other everyday things. And, and take note what it says there in verse 5, you hold my lot. My provision is in the Lord's sovereign hand. I find this is a huge relief that my lot and my circumstances are in God's hands. I, I hate to think what my lot would turn into if it was in my control. And think what a mess you would make of it as well. I think personal. But you're a, you're a sinner like me. and um, We would bring things that would be unwise and un, un, unhealthy for us, but our infinitely wise God and infinitely powerful God orchestrates our circumstances to provide what we truly need and what is truly good. And David is content with this, with his everyday needs and, and circumstances the Lord directs them, and he provides what I need. Further, David expresses contentment in his precepts. Uh, David found comfort and satisfaction with the guidance God word, God's word gives. Verse 7 shows us this. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night also. My heart instructs me. Um, According to Dr. Alan Ross, night was frequently the time when David was engaged in prayer and reflecting on God's word. That's what counsel in the night uh, refers to. Um, uh, this is the practice that gave David this counsel. But he goes on to say, uh, in the night my heart instructs me and I need to caution you, this is not, David is not singing our generation's song, hey, follow your heart. David is not following his heart. Uh, uh, David is not listening to his heart. Now, the word heart in verse 7, as your footnote might indicate, is actually the word kidneys. And as bizarre as that sounds, the Jewish mind the capacity for spiritual things was located in their internal organs, uh, usually the heart, sometimes the liver, and the kidneys. And strangely enough, the kidneys 
were believed to be where their conscience was located. This is what David is saying. That in the night, after prayer and, and study on God's word, these things informed his conscience. And these things instructed his conscience and guided him and informed him what he should do. And so here is the train of thought. Night is when he spends time mulling over the word and, and praying. And in turn, that would inform his conscience, which then would direct his decisions and his actions. This is what, how God guides us. David is, is not following his heart as we think of that phrase and as we hear that uh, often in our culture. Well, just follow your heart. What, what a bad idea. Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is desperately wicked and full of evil. It's tainted by sin. Whatever you do, don't follow your heart. Follow the input of God's word on your conscience. Is this something you do? Allow God's word to inform your thinking. Can I ask how much time you spend doing it? Uh, about how much time you spend allowing God's word to shape your conscience and compare that time of allowing the word to shape your mind to the amount of time you spend on social media or the time you spend watching things online. Wow, I'm getting really low this morning, aren't I? These things, whether you realize it or not, are also shaping your mind. And if you think that's not true, then you are being deceived, my friend. We're called to allow the Word of God to mold us and shape our thinking as Paul directs us to in Romans 2, this well-known verse, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. David finds contentment uh, in his precepts, in his person, in his provision, in his precepts, and further, David finds contentment in his protection. He finds satisfaction and security in the Lord's care, that very thing he had, he had committed to the Lord. He had, he had committed to him back in verse 1, Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge. Uh, in you I take refuge. And here is the, the very thing that he is enjoying this. Uh, verse 8 says, I have set the Lord always before me. And that is the Lord was his constant contemplation. He, he was ever mindful of the Lord, directing his thoughts, giving him the priority in his thinking, setting his mind on the Lord. Whew, Pastor Rob, I don't know what you had today, but this is, uh, this is, this is, this is radical. You are asking me to think about God all through the day. You betcha. Because this is what the Word is calling you to do all through the day. 
And, and look at the stability that this gives David as verse 8 it continues. Um, verse 8 goes on to say, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. The right side of the body was regarded as uh, the most vulnerable to attack. Um, soldiers carried their shields in their left hand, or it looks like my right from your perspective, but this is my left hand, and, and they carried their swords, their weapons, their spears, or whatever in their right hand. That made them susceptible to attack on that side. Uh, and this was often the case. Job uh, illustrates or remarks on this on my right hand. The rabble rise. They push away my feet. They cast up against me their ways of destruction. Job says they're coming at me on my, on my weak side. And because of this, it was up to the man fighting next to him to protect his friend's right side. David has something better, though, than a fellow warrior. He has the Lord at his right side, the maker of heaven and earth. Which would you rather have at your right hand? And so elsewhere the Psalms tell us, the Lord is your keeper, the Lord is your shade on your right hand. And because the Lord is protecting his weak side, uh, 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 the Lord supporting him, he would not stagger, he would not fall, he would not totter, he would not be toppled, whether he's being chased by Saul here or whether he's king and Absalom, his son, is, is chasing him. We don't know, but because God is at his right hand, he won't go wobbly at the knees. He won't stagger. The very thing that we see at the end of chapter uh, Psalm 15, the righteous man who follows the Lord, it says at the last line, he who does these things shall never be moved. Same word in our text today, shall not be shaken. We hear David's contentment. He is not sorry about the commitments he's made to the Lord. Uh, we, in that first stage, because those commitments to the Lord led directly to the second stage, the stage of contentment with his blessings and with his benefits. Mm. Well, now we, we go further. And in this last stage, uh, we've seen commitment and, and then contentment. And now what we find, uh, what's revealed to us is David's confidence uh, for the future. His um, confidence in the Lord. And David is confident of four things here. First, he's confident that he will rejoice even further because of the commitments he's made, because of his contentment, uh, because of the contentment they bring. As he's confident he will experience this joy further. Look at verse 9. Therefore, please note the word therefore. Please note the cause-effect relationship between these verses. I've done this, I've enjoyed this, and now this. Now I can be confident. And he's confident. He says, therefore, my heart is glad. 
uh, a different word for heart here. This is the word for the actual organ, the heart. This is not a reference to his kidneys or his conscience. This is the heart which scholars regard as the control center, the cockpit, the place that steers the ship, uh, the essence of who he is. It's where our emotional life and our intellectual life and our decision-making is, is based uh, David, at the core of who he is, at the very depth, down into his toes, I'm mixing metaphors, sorry, at the very depth of who he is, will rejoice and be glad in the Lord. Uh, and then the next phrase of verse 9, he goes on to say, my whole being rejoices. Some versions say, my glory rejoices. But this is another reference to the depth of who he is. Does this resonate with you? I wonder if, if you that are here sitting before me or you that are watching online, because of the commitment you've made to Christ and because of the contentment you've enjoyed from knowing and walking with him, I'm not saying there haven't been difficult times. We know there have been difficult times. But like David, because of your commitment and your contentment with Christ, you've experienced depth of joy down to your toes that nothing in this life can touch or comes close to. Even when things are difficult, and they often are, nothing can touch the joy of knowing Christ and beginning the day with Him and knowing that you can talk to Him without going through a temple, uh, without entering a curtain. But there in your living room, in your recliner, you can talk to the Lord Christ just as I'm speaking to you now. And you can tell him your sorrows. And you can pour out your soul to him, knowing that he hears. And knowing the sweetness of that, there's just nothing else that comes close. Can you relate to that? Well, David's confident of this, of rejoicing. He's also confident of, of rest, of repose, um, of, of security. Last phrase of verse 9 says, my flesh also dwells secure. Uh, my, my, my body, my whole being dwells quietly and confidently because the Lord holds my lot. Because the Lord holds what I need, I can rest in His provision, I can live confidently, I can live quietly, I cannot fret about what's coming. And third, David is further confident about resurrection, confident that the Lord will deliver him from death and that the Messiah will be raised from the dead. Verse 10, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. 
bit tricky, this one. It's quoted in the New Testament. We know ultimately David is speaking prophetically about the resurrection of Christ, but what did these words mean when he first penned them? He had probably just received the insurance, uh, the assurance from a priest that the Lord had heard and answered his prayer from verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge, and, and confident that the Lord had heard and answered, and that he would deliver him from death. Uh, this is what one scholar affirms. David is asserting that the Lord will not abandon his life to shield nor let his faithful one, David, see corruption. He knows that his prayer, verse 1, is answered and that he will not die or alternatively that he will be preserved from a premature death. But Peter tells us as well that David's also speaking prophetically. These words go beyond him. And while they refer to David's own immediate rescue, his words go beyond his experience and refer to the ultimate Holy One and describe his resurrection from the dead. The same scholar says David also speaks prophetically by the Holy Spirit and looks to the resurrection of the Messiah. His eyes on one of his descendants and his words have a far deeper meaning than the surface reading of them would suggest. They pointed to the fact that Christ would not be abandoned in the grave nor his body see corruption. And friend, this is something that you and I can be confident of, of as well. Resurrection. Because Christ conquered death, we will too. Uh, Peter wrote in 1 Peter, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. David is confident of resurrection. And fourth, and lastly, David is competent. And I'm going to have to really ask you to tune in now because this is, this is very intangible and it's very abstract and it's very good. David is confident of eternal pleasures at God's right hand. <coughs> This is not words we go around saying throughout the day typically. We can't even imagine what the right hand of God is like uh, when right hand is used in this sense. Uh, it is, in the Hebrew mind, a, a place of honor, uh, a, a great uh, honorable place. And this path of life that David's on, let me read the verse, uh, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. Uh, again, seated at someone's right hand was, uh, was an honor and a privilege. This is where Christ sat down after he descended, ascended to heaven. Uh, the Father uh, seated him at his right hand. The book of Revelation tells us that this is where you and I will one day be seated. Uh, if you can think that far ahead, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So this is something uh, so difficult to picture, so real. This is reality. This is what will happen if you know Christ. You will be seated with him on his throne. You're thinking about lunch now. Stop it. <laughs> 
my friend, you will be seated with Christ on his throne. Rejoicing at the Lord's right hand. And further, it says at the very end, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So, to begin with, he calls it fullness of joy. Uh, that means uh, fully satisfying joy, unlimited joy, uh, uh, unqualified joy at the right hand of God, complete and undiluted joy, and I know that's difficult for us to think about. It's hard to come close in this life to that kind of thing. We experience it on a very limited basis in this life, don't we? And so it's very hard to think about a joy that will not cease. Joy to its fullest and, and unending. Pleasures forevermore. They won't run out. You won't have to wake up the next day, although there is no day and night in eternity, and, and, and be fearful, oh, will I experience that again today, that joy? No, no need to question that. It will go on and on and on and on and on. It will never end. This is David's confidence. And, and note, the, note the stages again, friend. His commitment to the Lord. His commitment to those five things we looked at. And amongst those, the second one in particular, David has committed to the Lord as, um, let me get there, his sovereign and for you and me, this, this means trusting in Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. Trusting in His atoning death on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. This enjoyment of, of a believer's benefits begins with commitment. But then the second stage we see David in, and, and also for us it continues into contentment with what Christ provides and what we experience in Him. Uh, chiefly among these things is his, his very person. He's our possession, our inheritance, our lot. And this leads us to utter confidence in Him. Confidence of eternity with Him. A real future of joy that never runs out. These are the blessings, the benefits of a life lived with Christ uh, because of our commitment to Him, we can find contentment in Him, secondly, and experience confidence in Christ for our future as well. Benefits far outstripping employment at Ben and & Jerry's and a free pint of ice cream and far outstripping midday surfing 
in the coast of California. These are yours in Christ if you know him. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray for anyone in front of me that if anyone here has never bowed the knee to you as Savior and Lord, that they would just find this irresistible because of the joy that comes from a life lived with you at the center, Christ Jesus. And so woo them and draw them to yourself by your good spirit. Uh, Father, I, I know many of us present in the room have trusted in Jesus, your son. And I pray that we would truly enjoy this contentment that David spoke of this rest in you, but chiefly, Christ Jesus, in your very self, in your person, uh, that you are ours and we are yours. You are our lot. And may we revel in your lot and your gracious provision for us. <coughs> and may we have confidence, as David did, of eternity at your right hand, experiencing fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore. Savior, work these things in us by your indwelling spirit. We ask, Savior, in your name. Amen.